0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Church of Mabton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Thanks for listening. Well, today we're continuing in our series in on the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. And if you remember, we're nearing the end of this series actually, but the book of Revelation, the whole thing is written to these seven churches. And in chapters two and three, which we've been working our way through, we have seven individual messages to each of these distinct churches in seven different cities. And so today we have the message to the church in the city, the ancient city of Philadelphia. Like Cole mentioned, there is a modern day city of Philadelphia here in the United States. I'm wondering, have any of you ever been to our Philadelphia here in the U.S., quite a few of you have. And what is the city of Philadelphia today known as? What's its monikers? The city of brotherly love. Yeah, it's called that because the name Philadelphia actually comes from two Greek words that are put together a word for love and a word for city. The city of love or the city of brotherly love, as it's known. And so some of you have been to Philadelphia, maybe. You have had experiences like we've had. We actually lived in Philadelphia for one year while I was studying at a seminary there. And I can tell you from experience that this title of the city, the City of Brotherly Love, is probably one of the most unlikely titles for the actual culture of the city if you've ever been there. It's not, in its culture, it's not a warm and friendly city on the whole. People are actually kind of direct and blunt cold, or or we might even use the word rude. When we first moved there, it was a little bit of a shock to us because it felt to us like everyone is always so rude to us, like they don't want us around. Maybe some of you have heard me tell this story before. I remember when we first got in there and we went to a McDonald's for some reason, I walked up to order and the young gal who was working there to take orders on the other side of the register stood there and looked at me. And it literally looked at me, it felt to me like, like I had just ruined her day by having the audacity to approach her register to place an order. No greeting, no friendliness, nothing of the sort. That was kind of the culture of the city. We got yelled at many different times, especially driving. And eventually we kind of got used to it. In fact, I I knew I was becoming more like a local the first time I yelled at someone while um, I was actually riding my bike and yelled at another, at a driver on the road. And we realized, oh, maybe we shouldn't live here too long or we might actually become kind of like this and end up being a little rude ourselves. But there's great irony there. The city of brotherly love, and yet when we were in the city, oftentimes we weren't really feeling the brotherly love. We're going to see in our text here today in this message to the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia that something kind of similar was happening for these Christians, for this church. Even though they were living in the ancient city of love, these Christians were not feeling the love. In fact, they'd become kind of like outcasts in their own town. They were suffering hardships in their community and in this message, Jesus is trying to inspire the church, motivate and compel them to remain faithful. They've been faithful, he says. He's very positive and affirming of them. They've been faithful. Now he wants to encourage them to continue in their faithfulness, to hold fast to Jesus, even in the midst of hardship. Okay, so our outline for today, it's in your bulletin. If you want to follow along, take notes up here on the screen as well. First, we'll talk about the key of David that Jesus holds, which comes to us in the first verse, and this will be important to us for understanding the message Jesus has for the church. Then second, we'll talk about the actual situation for these Christians in Philadelphia and what was going on at that time, at least as best as we can understand it. And then third and finally, we'll talk about the rewards. Jesus has several promises throughout this passage of the rewards for those who hold fast to him in the hope of motivating us to continue holding fast to him. Okay, so first, the key of David, the key of David. You may remember if you've been tracking through these messages with us, this is the sixth one out of seven. And in each of these messages, it starts off with a verse that describes Jesus in some way, gives some attribute of Jesus. And these attributes of Jesus that are given at the beginning of each message they go back to Revelation chapter one, where there was this vision that John had of Jesus. If you remember that glorious vision in chapter one, Jesus was clothed in white, his eyes were blazing, he had a sword coming out of his mouth, and so on, this spectacular vision. And one thing that that was said in that vision is that Jesus holds a key. And now here, John picks up on this key, And in this first verse of our text, in verse 7, we're told about the key that Jesus holds. Okay, so look at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So what do we make of this key of David that Jesus is holding? Well, here's one of those places where we have to remember that a lot of the language and imagery in the book of Revelation actually comes out of the Old Testament. And this key of David and what's said here about the key of David and opening and shutting doors, this language comes almost directly, almost word for word, out of Isaiah chapter 22, and this is Isaiah chapter 22. It's not a well-known passage. We're not gonna take the time right now to read through the whole thing. So you can write that down, go back and read it if you want on your own time. I'll summarize it for us here, Isaiah chapter 22. And here's what's going on in Isaiah 22. The prophet Isaiah is prophesying about Jerusalem and the people of Israel against them. He's saying that they, the Lord's people, have been unfaithful to the Lord. The people of Jerusalem have been unfaithful. And remember, Jerusalem is the city of David. This is the kingdom of David, the people of Israel, where David had reigned earlier in the Old Testament. But at this time now, Hezekiah is king in Isaiah chapter 22. And the Jewish people, they're under attack from their enemies. And Isaiah is saying that he's criticizing the Lord's people because instead of trusting in the Lord in this situation they have been building their own defenses, trusting in themselves. And now they're despairing because they're realizing the enemy is too powerful and they're going to fall. And so they've basically resigned themselves to dying at the hands of their enemies. They're saying, maybe for have heard this phrase before, they're saying, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we're all going to die. They're not trusting the Lord. And in the midst of this prophecy Isaiah gives against people of Israel, he prophesies against a specific person named Shebna. Okay, this is kind of an obscure story. I have to admit, I didn't even, who was Shebna? You know, when the pastor doesn't remember the story, then you know it's obscure, right? And so if any of you remember Shebna, then you're doing well. You're doing better than me, okay? I won't ask for a poll, but not, does anybody remember Shebna? Yeah, okay, good. Nobody else does either. Okay, so here's what's going on with Shebna. Shebna was a high official at that time in Jerusalem. He was probably something like the chief of staff to King Hezekiah, the highest official in King Hezekiah's kingdom. And Shebna was arrogant, and he had exalted himself, thought very highly of himself, so highly that he had gone and built for himself an extravagant tomb among the tombs of the kings of Israel. He wanted to be remembered as a king of Israel. And so the Lord says through Isaiah that he is going to judge Shebna, toss him out on his ear in shame. And then here's the important part, why all this matters. Because then he says, the Lord says to Shebna, I will take the key of the house of David from Shebna and give it to another person a person named Eliakim, who is a faithful servant of the Lord. Eliakim will have the key, and with that key, this is Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, the Lord says, he, Eliakim, shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. Does that sound a little familiar to our passage? So in Isaiah chapter 22, having the key of David is a picture of authority. It's about who has the power in the kingdom at that time. The Lord said, I'm going to take the power away from Shebna and give it to Eliakim. I'm taking the key from Shebna and giving it to Eliakim. And Eliakim will have such power in the kingdom that what he determines will be final. No one gets to overrule him. When he unlocks the door, no one comes behind and locks it. No one shuts what he's opened. No one opens what he's shut. No one can overrule him. So we come to our text in Revelation chapter 3, and here we have the key of David. And who is holding, in Revelation 3, the key of David? Jesus is holding the key of David. And then we think this through in the book of Revelation The kingdom of David has been expanded in the book of Revelation into a heavenly kingdom. The throne of David in the book of Revelation is in heaven. Jesus sits on that throne in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of heaven. And so the key of David is a way of saying, essentially, the key of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus holds that key meaning Jesus has absolute authority in the kingdom of heaven. He is the one and he alone who opens doors and welcomes people into the kingdom of heaven. He is the one who shuts the door and keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. So this is what Jesus does, and no one can overrule Jesus who holds the key of David. Okay, so all of that about the key of David. Why is this important? Why is Jesus reminding the church in Philadelphia of this truth that he holds the key of David? Well, it's because of what is going on in Philadelphia and the situation there. And so this takes us to our second point, the situation in Philadelphia. It's not entirely easy to figure out exactly what was going on in Philadelphia, but If we kind of read through the next couple verses, we get an idea of what was taking place there that we can kind of put together with our historical knowledge of the world at that time to get a picture of what was going on. So we're going to do a little bit of detective work, trying to put some pieces together here of what was taking place. Okay, so look at verse eight. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I know your works. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So there's that open door again. Jesus holding the key of David, saying to these Christians, I've opened the door for you and welcomed you into my kingdom, and no one can shut you out. When you put your faith in me, Jesus is saying, and I received You, you are in my kingdom. I let you in. I have the authority to do that. No one overrules me. But at the same time, Jesus says to these Christians, I know your works. And he says, I know that you have but little power. And yet, despite your weakness, you have kept my word and not denied my name. So what does he mean that they have but little power. Well, the clues start coming together when we get to the next verse in verse nine. And he starts talking about the synagogue here. So verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus here is very critical of the synagogue in Philadelphia. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. He says, in this synagogue are people who claim to be Jews, but they're actually liars. They claim to be part of my people. And even though perhaps they have Jewish ethnicity and think and presume themselves to be part of my people, they're actually not part of my people. And then Jesus promises here That the day is coming when these synagogue members will bow down before the Christians and know of Jesus' love for them. Okay, so now we try to put these pieces together. What is going on here? Why all this language about the synagogue and open doors and all of this? Well, we're going to take a step back and think through this kind of historically a little bit. Okay, so try to follow me now with a little, little history. Church history in the first century here. Okay, so we'll start with the synagogue. What is or what was a synagogue in the first century? Well, back then, kind of like today, the synagogue was a place where Jewish people gathered together to practice their faith. If you go back before the days of Jesus, a few hundred years before, like 100, 200, 300 B.C., Jews at that time were spreading out, moving outside of Jerusalem, out around the Mediterranean Sea, further and further away from the temple in Jerusalem. As they moved out into these other cities far away, they wanted to have a place where they could gather together, to read scripture, to worship, to pray. And so they built synagogues, kind of like a church building today, a place to gather together. So these synagogues, by the time Jesus comes, these synagogues existed in a lot of cities like Philadelphia. So now Jesus comes, he dies, he's raised from the dead, he ascends to heaven, sends out his followers, go preach the gospel, he tells them, go to these other places and, and tell everyone that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king. And so as these Christians went out, people like the Apostle Paul and Peter and other words, others, if you kind of know how this story goes, when they would go into a town to proclaim the gospel, where would they often go first to proclaim that gospel? They would go to the Jewish people, those who already believe the Old Testament scriptures. They would go into the synagogues and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. So what kind of happened is for several years, decades even, Christians and Jews kind of coexisted in these synagogues. You had Jewish people in the synagogue, some of whom believed Jesus was the Messiah, and some who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And the Christians, those who believed Jesus is the Messiah, are trying to convert these other Jews. And at the same time, over time, these Christians, their teaching is a little different. They have a different perspective of the law and what the law means in light of Christ. A different perspective on circumcision. And so there's tensions growing inside the synagogue, if you're kind of following this, until we know historically, synagogues began kicking out Christians and began saying the synagogue is not a place for people who believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jewish or not, you need to go somewhere else. And so as they did that, as they kicked out the Christians, This had implications for Christians in the church. There were implications beyond just, well, we need to go find somewhere else to meet. Now the synagogue's not open to us. These Jews in the synagogue were also saying to these Christians effectively, if you you are no longer, if you're not part of the synagogue, you are no longer part of the people of God. They're passing judgment on these Christians, saying effectively, you're out of the kingdom as if they, the synagogue, holds the key to the kingdom. And these Christians, once they found themselves outside the synagogue, they were very weak and vulnerable to harassment and persecution. So if you remember, if you're following all this history, okay, if you remember, at this time, the world is ruled over by the Roman Empire, and Rome was a pagan nation. And as part of their pagan nation, they required people to worship the Greek and Roman gods. Everyone needs to worship Apollo and Artemis and all the gods and worship and honor the emperor. But over time, as the Jews have been building these synagogues, the Jews had also managed to work out legal arrangements with the Roman Empire to give them some freedom to worship the God of the Bible and to not worship the pagan gods. And so Jews had gotten these exemptions from the Roman Empire, to be exempt from worshiping the pagan gods. So as long as, if you're following this, as long as Christians were associated with the synagogue, they were kind of under the synagogue, they had these legal protections. But as soon as they were pushed out, they lost those legal protections. They were now under the requirements to worship the pagan gods. And if they chose not to worship the pagan gods, they would suffer the consequences Okay, if you followed even half of that, okay? We come back to our text here. What on earth is going on in Philadelphia with the synagogue and the Christians and all of this? It seems like what has happened here, something like this, that the synagogue in Philadelphia has said to this little group of Christians, you're no longer welcome, and they've kicked them out. You're not part of, of the people of God. They've shut the door of the synagogue to them, left them outside where they have no legal protections, where they have very little power or influence. And so now not only are they excluded from the synagogue, but now they also are likely to suffer persecution from Rome and perhaps are already suffering. Rome was known at this time Call Christians to account. You must must confess Caesar as Lord and reject Jesus. And if you don't, you will pay the consequences, including all the way up to torture and execution. So this is what's going on for these Christians. They're outsiders, pushed out from society. They're weak, they're vulnerable. And yet, how have these Christians in Philadelphia responded to the situation? Well, if you read through the message to Philadelphia, Jesus has nothing but positive things to say about them. And we've seen these other messages. Jesus is capable in these messages of pointing out where churches have fallen short, isn't he? We've seen that over and over, not for this church in Philadelphia. In fact, Jesus says, though you have little power, he says, I know that you have kept my word and have not denied my name in verse 8. You have have been faithful to me, Jesus says, even when you've been pushed out and are powerless. Verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast, Jesus says. The idea is that there's pressure upon you to let go of me given what's going on in your world. And yet he appeals them to continue holding fast. Why would they hold fast? Why keep on remaining faithful to his word and honoring his name? Well, Jesus has a number of things to say throughout this passage about the promises and the rewards that belong to these Christians because of their hope in Christ. And this takes us to our third point, the rewards for holding fast the rewards for holding fast. Why remain faithful when you're suffering, when you have no power or influence, when the world is against you and you're pushed outside? Well, Jesus gives promises now, the rewards. We've seen how in each of these messages, the seven churches, at the very end of them comes a promise for the one who conquers, And then Jesus says something that he will give to the one who conquers. And we've said along the way that all these promises and rewards are cumulative. They're all piling up for those who are faithful to Jesus. Reward after reward, we've seen things like you will eat from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. You will receive the crown of life. You will eat the hidden manna, whatever that means. You'll have authority over the nations and so on. And so in this message to Philadelphia, it's the same as the other messages. And then at the end of it, down in verse 12, we do get a statement about the one who conquers and Jesus gives some rewards. But also all throughout the passage, Jesus is making promises of rewards to them. It's sprinkled all throughout. This is unique to this message in Philadelphia. So we can go back through it and we can see the rewards, the promises he's making. We can go back to verse eight where Jesus says, I have set before you an open door and no one is able to shut it. I have the key of David and Jesus is saying to these Christians, I have opened the door for you. You're in my kingdom and once I brought you in, who can kick you out? No one can shut the door that I've opened to you. It's a promise to them, an assurance to them. Then we come down to verse nine. And what does Jesus say about those who are opposing them? The Jews in the synagogue, he says, they will bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It's a picture of vindication. That Jesus will enter into judgment and he will elevate his people in that judgment, vindicate them while their enemies will be humbled and all will know of Jesus' love for his people. So at the present time, Jesus is saying to them, you may be oppressed, you may be suffering at the hands of the synagogue, but you can know and be assured of this promise of a coming day of judgment when Jesus will vindicate you. You can hold on to this promise in the midst of hardship. Then in verse 10, Jesus gives another promise. Look at verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus here says there's another trial coming, more trials coming on the whole world. Probably Jesus has in mind here the kinds of of judgments that are described later in the book of Revelation when God will pour out his wrath upon all the sinfulness in the entire world when Je- in preparation for Jesus returning. And Jesus is promising here that in that day of judgment, in that day when God's wrath is poured out, what will happen to God's people, to those who have been faithful? Well, Jesus promises that he will be present with us and he will protect us from God's wrath and judgment, that we will be secure, that we will not receive his judgment. Again, a promise we can hold on to. That When his judgment comes, if we faithfully endured, we belong to Christ, we don't fear the judgment. Jesus will protect us in that day. Another promise we can hold on to in verse 11, he's coming soon. So hold fast to him and no one Can seize your crown. He already promised the crown of life back in his message to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10 the one who conquers will receive the crown of life. We have the crown of life. Now he promises that he will keep that crown secure. Nobody can come take the crown off your head. Nobody can take life away from you once Christ has given it to you. And then we get to verse 12 finally. And here's The one who conquers statement that comes at the end of all these messages. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now here's something to look forward to. If ever you're thinking, what will it be like when we're with Christ in his heavenly kingdom for all eternity. Have you ever envisioned yourself as a pillar, as a column of stone in his kingdom? Isn't that what we all want to be? Someday, if you grow up, you can be a big pillar of stone too, right? This is what, but Jesus is promising something here. What's he saying? Well, clearly it's not literal. We're actually going to be pillars, in the temple of God. But he's making us think about how temples were built in the ancient world. How they carved pillars out of stone, out of granite, hard stone, and stood them up and the entire building was made out of stone. And these pillars would stand for hundreds or even thousands of years, buildings that were made to last. Now you look, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at the stuff we build today, you know, that we live in, a, in a, you know, a good house like a lot of us do. What are the chances that the house you live in will still be standing in 100 years? Well, there's, there's a, maybe a chance, right? 50-50 maybe, something like that. How about 200 years? I think your house will still be standing and lived in 300 years, 400 years? It's hard to imagine a building that will last. We don't use permanent materials, But Jesus is promising here that if we conquer, if we're faithful to him, he'll make us like a pillar in the heavenly temple, as if we're made of stone, fixed in place, established permanently in a temple that will never fall down in heaven. It's a way of saying that our position in heaven is eternally secure. It's why he follows it up by saying, never shall the one who conquers go out it you're fixed and you're in forever remember again who holds the key of david jesus does he opens the door to let us in and now it's as if he's saying once you're in i shut the door and you can never go out you're secure in the kingdom forever you're a pillar you're fixed in place this is it And then also in verse 12, he says that there will be three names inscribed on this pillar. It was very common in the ancient world to inscribe names into important buildings like this. And as a way of honoring someone, a way of saying this building belongs to this person or was built in honor of this person in this place. And so three names inscribed upon us As pillars, first, we'll have the name of God inscribed upon us, that we belong to God for all eternity, and our lives forever throughout eternity will honor him. Second, we'll have the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven inscribed upon us. This is the place where we belong and will be established and will dwell forever in this heavenly city. And then third and finally, Jesus says, we'll have the new name of Jesus himself inscribed upon us, that we belong to him and honor him for all eternity. We'll forever be identified as the people of Jesus. So he put all these rewards together and they all have a common theme, that what Jesus has given to you can never be taken away. He has the key. If he opens it, no one else shuts it. If he shuts it, no one else opens it. If he gives you the crown of life, no one takes it away. If he establishes you in his kingdom, you're there forever. If you belong to God, it's etched in stone. You're his forever. And we can see how this is a powerful message for these Christians, this church in Philadelphia a message of great hope to them and also a message of great hope for us that our position in Christ is secure for all eternity. And if so, then we can and we should hold fast to him. This was a challenge for the church at that time. Remember, little power, little influence as Christians, they were outcasts in society, kicked out of the synagogue with no legal protections, vulnerable to harassment and persecution, and yet they can have confidence in Christ and hold fast to him. For some of us, this may be something like how we feel as Christians in our world today. It wasn't so long ago in our culture here in our country when We at least felt, many of us as Christians, we at least felt like the world is pretty friendly to Christians. As Christians, we have some respect in our world. We're legally protected. The world is accommodating to us, allows us freedoms, and allows us to worship and live out our convictions in peace. Over the past several years, probably many of us have felt at different times and in different ways, like we as Christians are more vulnerable in our world, less protected, more harassed or subject to suffering and hardship in our world. Probably many of us have felt like it's harder to live out our convictions as Christians, that our worship as Christians is less understood, less appreciated. We may even feel like we're in some ways being pushed out of society, that we're more vulnerable legally. And we can look at the situation in Philadelphia and compare, and we, we, might, we might conclude that, well, at least we're not in quite such a bad pickle as they were in at that time. But it can feel like we're moving in that direction. Probably many of us have not kept up with such things, but there are Christian scholars out there who study culture, trends in culture, all that, they've been saying for probably the past 20 or 30 years that for us as Christians here in America, the world has moved on from its respect for Christian faith. You could argue whether or not we were ever a Christian nation, all that kind of stuff, but the world is what they call a post-Christian world that we live in. And so what what we're experiencing is not a surprise to many of them who have analyzed these things with any kind of depth. And so here we are as Christians now where we feel like at times my Christian faith could cause me to lose my job. My Christian faith could cause me to be excluded from a college or university somewhere, to not qualify for a scholarship here or there. I might have to rethink my business plan and idea for my business because of my Christian convictions. What's the message to us as Christians? If indeed we're in a situation in some degree, in some way like that in Philadelphia, being pushed out in the world. Well, here's what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia. Here's what he says to us. He says, hey church, guess what? I hold the key of David. When I open a door, no one shuts it. When I close a door, no one opens it. I and I alone have authority. I decide who is in and who is out. And no one can overrule me. And so church Christians, if you have put your faith in me and you know me and you follow me and hold fast to my name, then know this, I have opened the door to you and welcomed you in and you belong to me. So what can the world do to you? They think they're powerful and you feel powerless. They try to kick you around and exclude you and shut you out. But guess what? Guess what they don't have? They don't have the key. They think they're in charge, but they're deceiving themselves. And the day of judgment is coming when they will be cast down and you will be vindicated and they will know of my love for you. Jesus says to us, I'm coming soon And when I arrive, you will be established in my city for all eternity. I'm going to close the door behind you so you can never be snatched away from my kingdom. And you will be a pillar forever. I'm going to write my name on you, and you will belong to me. So take hope, he's saying, even when you're pushed around, and hold fast, Endure. Keep on obeying my word and honoring my name. Hold fast to the one who has the key of David, who is coming soon, and no one will be able to snatch away your crown. Hold fast, he says. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.